Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My guest this week is Peter Heather, who has written the book Christendom. Which is, a, which is a brilliant account of that Christianization and Latin Christendom in Europe. Um, you are not a Christian yourself, so how did you become, how did a non-Christian end up writing a book about the Christianization of Europe and Latin Christendom? Uh, well, I, I don't have any kind of um, active belief now. I did have a religious phase. Um, in my uh, teenage years, the thing that makes a lot of my uh, friends laugh the most is that at one point I did think I wanted even to become an Anglican priest, but uh, mm. uh, that proved ephemeral rather than constant. But uh, of course, I'm a medieval historian, and you um, can't do medieval history without being very interested in mm. the history of Christianity um, and having had uh, a pretty strong, actually, religious phase then I've always been interested in Christianity and very interested in the long-term patterns of change within it. Uh, I mean, that's the focus of the book, as you've seen, but that's uh, also what interests me. Yeah. But we're going to focus a lot on the Christianization of Europe in this episode, and that is, of course, part of the book as well. And I, But I want to, to, because we started at the time of Constantine, but I want to begin a little bit before that, before, because I feel like to understand Christianity before Constantine, it's important as well, because as we mentioned before on this podcast, it was not a happy time to be a Christian before before Constantine legalized Christianity. Yeah, it was periodically very unpleasant. Um, the, the Roman state doesn't persecute Christianity constantly, but every so often um, a policy of persecution gets uh, dragged out for, usually for the a particular emperor's own personal political reasons. Nero is a famous example after the fire yes, of Rome, or, of or Decius in the third century, even Marcus Aurelius in the middle of the second century. Um, it's usually to pulled out as a kind of uh, representative of the, of the other, of the unwanted strangeness, and to show that... Uh, the current emperor is strong at upholding traditional values. And in these persecutions, you know, several hundred people died. Um, it's very hard to estimate the number of early Christian martyrs because you get a lot of uh, amplification of the numbers after Constantine. Um, but uh, you're looking certainly at least around a thousand and maybe a few more. Uh, who definitely were killed for their faith. And, of course, you've got a lot of others who were imprisoned for a period, um, who lost their social status, whose lives were massively dislocated. So the Roman state uh, was not uh, a pleasant uh, interlocutor for Christianity. 
in those first three centuries AD, not at all. Yeah. And uh, so the Jews would become to Christianity, the Christians would be the easy scapegoat. And as we mentioned, the fire of Rome, of course, in and the Nero, they would become the scapegoats, as would be later cases, or maybe earlier as well. So it would be kind of easy to blame the Christians for the bad things that happened in the Roman Empire, wouldn't it? Yes, uh, I think that's certainly, certainly early on, that is precisely um, the role in which they're being used. Um, and at that point, uh, of course, most of Roman society doesn't know very much about Christians, so it's very easy to spread scare stories. Uh, about what Christian rituals involved, the whole body and blood business. Um, and the communion uh, was uh, one source of uh, fake news about human sacrifice and whatever. And that, interestingly, that does change over time as Christians become uh, a more normal part of the sort of urban fabric of Roman towns. I mean, people don't stop thinking that Christians are odd, but they do start thinking that they're not uh, inherently toxic and dangerous. And by the time we get to the last of the Roman persecutions, the great one in the early fourth century, uh, what's really striking about that compared to earlier persecutions is the limited amount of um, local enthusiasm for the act of persecution. That last persecution is very much a top-down process. Uh, whereas prior to that, uh, certainly in the first and second centuries and the earliest ones we know about, then sometimes emperors are responding to local complaints about Christians. So local societies don't like having Christians in their midst and complain about it. And that's what triggers persecution. But that kind of uh, strong sense that Christians are weird and strange, I think, has probably gone by about 300 and I think we mentioned this other part before as well, but and the Romans were normally tolerant of others' religion just as long as it did not co coincide or get in the way of their own. So, but what made Christianity this? And then get letters from Pliny, who writes to the emperor, what, uh, what should we do with these troublesome Christians? But So what made the Christians so troublesome for the Romans, considering that they normally, like you said, allowed other religions yeah. to... Be practiced. What was required, what was required religiously in the Roman Empire was a very small act of compliance to certain public cults, the Capitoline cults and the Imperial cult. Um, and if you were put on the spot, you were expected to sacrifice to these cults uh, and take part in those celebrations. It was a tiny, I mean, it was a tiny proportion of most people's religious lives. Um, when you look at the religious complexion of uh, the Greco-Roman world, you know, all the way from Britain to um, Iraq, there are hundreds of gods and hundreds of cults because, uh, you know, these uh, areas had wildly different histories before they end up as part of the Roman Empire. And none of that is kind of stomped on the head and shut down. Um, but you're expected to add acts of co compliance towards the imperial cult on top of that. And it's that that the Christians weren't willing to do. So they wouldn't sacrifice uh, uh, when required to the public cults uh, of the empire, um, which, as I said, you know, is a tiny proportion of most people's religious lives. 
but Christians weren't willing to do it, and therefore that made them a, a possible target. So, of course, let's begin with Constantine and how he became a Christian, as according to the legend, of course, which is our cross or a halo, as you talk about in the book. And you explain quite well what this vision that Constantine might have had meant. So, how? But let's get a little bit background as well on Constantine, how we came to get this vision and how he. How Christians became important as a part of his lifetime. Yeah, it's a very interesting story. Um, when he become first becomes emperor in three hundred and six, and he's uh, put on the throne by his father's army in York at the uh, the British um, army capital uh, in York. Um, his father Constantius was there with his army, and his army puts after Constantius dies, they put Constantine on the throne. At that point, there are seven other emperors. Uh, the, uh, there is a, a huge contest going on for imperial power, and so that's one point to bear in mind. And the second point to bear in mind uh, is that the great persecution of Christians, which had been launched by Diocletian um, in 302, 303, that was still going on. So the official policy of uh, the Roman state was one of overt and consistent hostility towards uh, Christians. And the Great Persecution is probably the best documented persecution. Several hundred Christians die in it. I mean, not thousands, but several hundred. So uh, it's a serious business. Um, and it's against those two points that you have to look at what Constantine does on the religious front. And... Uh, you see a slow evolution in his public statements about Christianity. Um, originally, uh, he simply upholds the policy of Diocletian uh, on the religious front. Uh, then in 310, he changes his policy uh, to uh, adoration of the one uh, unconquered sun, sun god, Helios. In 312, uh, or from 312 onwards, uh, he institutes a policy of religious toleration towards Christians. And when writing to Christians, he says, I'm of the same religion as you. But his public statements are still mostly uh, monotheistic and ambiguous. So still, unconquered son is all over his coinage. He talks about the one great God. The unconquered son was a kind of pagan monotheistic cult. Um, and then in 324, his public policy changes to one of unambiguous Christianity. The key point about all of these changes, so 310 to solar monotheism, the unconquered son, 312, uh, unconquered son, but saying he's Christian to Christians, only in Christian contexts. 324, I'm absolutely a Christian, and Christianity is right. Each of those marks a moment in his path of power after a victory. So he's won a military victory immediately prior to each change of policy. Uh, and what this means, of course, is that part of his story is one of coming out as a Christian when it's because it's safe for him to say that he is a Christian. In 306, if, as I suspect, he may already have been a Christian, if he'd said he was a Christian in 306, he'd have been one Christian emperor among six others who were pagan, at a time when the others were persecuting Christianity and they all just turned on him to get rid of him first. 
So uh, it's a the vision story about of which there are several variants. He clearly said different things to different people about this that fits in this quite complicated political story. Um, and it's, I think, at least in part, Constantine's story is not so much one of Christian conversion as of coming out as a Christian when it's politically safe for him to do so. So it wasn't this spontaneous, oh, I see a halo in the cross in the sky, kind of, let's, at the Battle of Minuan Bridge, let's paint the other shields I mean, across to win. It wasn't, uh, that's a military story, right? No, that's clearly not what it, it clearly was not that. Um, uh, and we do not see a sudden change uh, to avert Christianity after 312 uh, in Constantine's public statements. And indeed, uh, the Arch of Constantine, which he puts up to celebrate that victory in Rome, it's just it's right next to the Colosseum. Um, that has no Christian religious uh, some, some, uh, ideology or symbolic representations. There's nothing Christian about it the Arch of Constantine whatsoever, which is very striking. Mm. So let's talk about the Minwin Bridge. And now I want to answer mentioned earlier, you did talk about it, explain elaborate rather well how in this halo as you mentioned in the book came how that what reasonable explanation there might be behind the halo in that is seen in the sky before Minwin Bridge. Yeah, um, well, <laughs> the thing is, Constantine is someone who has a lot of visions, or maybe has one vision which he talks about. I mean, was it that ways. uncommon at that time, though? Uh, well, it's expected uh, that, uh, I mean, the, the, the ideologies current at the time are that Roman emperors are um, chosen by God, by the divinity. And the Roman Empire is uh, the, the divine vehicle uh, for, uh, for humankind. So, you know, the Roman Empire is God's special state. The ruler of God's special state is individually chosen by the divinity. Uh, therefore, you expect uh, Roman emperors to have a close relationship with the divinity. So, yes, emperors are kind of expected to have visions and dreams and this kind of stuff because it's a sign that they are in close touch with uh, God and they should be in close touch with God. Mm. That's, the, that's their and role. And this will be the present all throughout uh, medieval and early European history, right? That the ruler was uh, the chosen representative of God. They would follow this tradition all the way up, at least until maybe even some think they are to this day, that they are chosen by God to it, rule it's their country. Yeah, I mean, uh, one, of the, one of the titles uh, that you see on uh, British coins of British monarchs is Defender of the Faith, which is mm. uh, an echo of this, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. So, Let's talk about the million bridge, which would be the size. Of, and I want to ask as well, because this would change, as well, as we know, the fate of Europe, to put it that way, the Battle of Milvin Bridge. But if it had gone the other way around, do you think Christianity still would have been the dominant religion, or do you think it would just a little bit later, or do you think it would have kind of died out in a sense, or what? What do you think would have happened if the Constantine have lost the Battle of Minwin Bridge. I, I certainly think that um, it's, in, and this is one of the things I'm trying to do in the book, is to 
uh, rethink the early history of Christianity without assuming that it must win. And I think that's what the history of Christianity in the 20th century, at least in a European context, is telling us we must do. Because actually, at the start of the 20th century, uh, if you asked everyone in Europe, they would say they were Christian, and quite a lot of them were going to churches of one kind or another. Um, and when my grandfather uh, joins the British Army in 1910, he's forced to go to church. <laughs> there is a church parade on Sunday. You have to go to church. This is normal and it's normative. But over the course of the 20th century, we've seen church attendance decline. A lot of people still say they're Christian on censuses or whatever, but they don't actually go to church and they don't organize their lives around Christian festivals. They're not taught by it. So to me, and this is the fundamental drive in the book, uh, that's why I went back to the early history of Christianity. We have seen essentially Christianity lose its hold on the majority of European consciences in the 20th century. So let's rethink the early history of Christianity in the light of that. Let's have a look at the evidence without assuming that it's always destined to win because we've seen that it's not. Mm. So, uh, taking that perspective back to Constantine, um, one of the things that jumps out to me very much is that the uh, attempts to calculate Christian numbers in the era before Constantine have, uh, I think, a strong tendency to wildly inflate uh, the, the, the likelihood. You can't know, absolutely, and I wouldn't pretend for a moment that you can, but we know that the empire is divided into um, about 1,800 administrative units. Mm. There are Christian communities places that have a bishop in only uh, one third of those that doesn't mean that there's no christians at all in the other two thirds but it does mean there's no organized christian community so they're probably not very many and even in the um cities that's what each of these communities is that does have a christian uh community then christians are, are still quite small numbers christianity is not spread into the countryside in any substantial way or in most parts of the empire. And most people, of course, are peasants, 90% of the 85, 95, 80 to 85 to 90% of the population work on the land. So if Christianity is not spread outside actual cities into the countryside, that's a lot of the population that's not going to be Christian. And even in the urban populations, only one third of the cities have uh, any Christian organized community at all and in no city are christians the majority so you know you can run the numbers uh, i do my best to uh run a conservative ballpark figure i do not see how you get christian numbers up above about two percent of the population of the empire at, at most and potentially a little bit less than that um so christians aren't very numerous they're also not very organized at the time of Constantine. And to me, this is what's so interesting about the conversion of Constantine, uh, that it unleashes this incredible process of transformation um, in terms of creating uh, an organized institutional church, increasing numbers of Christians massively, all these kinds of things. Um, 
uh, and you know the the great Swiss historian Burkhardt um, thought that Constantine converted to Christianity because Christianity would make a wonderful partner in the government of the empire. But actually, it's the transformed Christianity that's created by Constantine's conversion with many more people, much more organization, much more internal definition of faith. It's that entity that makes a good partner in the running of the empire, and that's created by Constantine's conversion. It doesn't exist before Constantine's conversion. So um, I'm basically forced back on the conclusion that Constantine converted because he uh, was uh, already probably a Christian. Um, and that when he wins out in the struggle for power within the empire, this allows him to uh, take control of the empire. What that means is that Christianity is a, a very small, uh, not very united sect within the, the Roman world in the time of Constantine. And whether that could have found a path to cultural dominance mm. without becoming the religion of the empire... I think that's probably pretty doubtful. Another thing I want to know is why did they choose, and of course this is where the name Roman Catholicism comes from, I imagine, but why did they choose Rome as the Pope's seat of power, not Jerusalem? That would make much more sense considering Jerusalem and Bethlehem is kind of where Jesus spent his time. So why, why did, I mean, maybe it was a good idea in the long run when it comes we would come back to the Crusades, of course, but so maybe it was a good idea. But at the time, for me, it would have made much more sense in Bethlehem or Jerusalem as a seat of power for the Pope. So why, why, why Rome? Well, I think it's a good question. Why not Jerusalem? Um, that goes back to the subsequent history of Jerusalem uh, after Jesus's uh, life and death, uh, because there's a ma there's a series of major Jewish revolts against Roman rule. And basically, the the city is destroyed and abandoned for a while in the course of them. And that early Christian community that you get in Acts, you know, so the, the community that's talked about there, the earliest Christian community that there was, uh, that gets um, destroyed. And there's no continuity in the Christian community in um, Jerusalem. So the Christian community that that is oldest and has the most continuous history is actually that of Antioch. Um, and soon after that, Alexandria. Uh, Rome is also a, a very early foundation because, of course, um, Peter does go to Rome. Paul is on his way to Rome. Uh, there is a Christian community there at the heart of the empire from very, very early on. Uh, and actually what we see uh, in um but also, again, as we see, as we will come back to, Constantine does move the capital from Rome to Constantinople or Nuevo Roma. So again, it would, Rome would seem, considering you move the capital as well, that Constantinople even would be a better option, considering that's where it goes to. So Rome well, that is, of course, a weird solution. That is the late Roman pattern. Um, this whole business of papal authority is uh, an incredibly late invention. It's actually an invention of the 11th and 12th century. Mm. Um, so the late Roman pattern is, uh, first of all, that emperors, as specifically chosen by God to rule God's special state, they have supreme religious authority, and their chief religious advisors are the heads of the oldest Christian communities, the so-called patriarchs, 
Rome is one of them, but Alexandria and Antioch consider themselves entirely equal to Rome in the late Roman period. And they add two more. They do indeed add Constantinople. And they do, once there is a Christian community up and running again in Jerusalem, uh, the Bishop of Jerusalem is given patriarchal status as well. So the late Roman pattern is emperors have supreme religious authority because they're chosen by God. And there are five uh, patriarchal advisors, as it were, to him, of which Rome is only one. Now, Rome, uh, bishops of Rome, uh, occasionally uh, make noises that they should be more important than any of the other patriarchs, but none of the other patriarchs believe them, and nor do they actually acquire uh, any greater authority in the late Roman period than any of the other patriarchs. So uh, the, it's very important not to antedate papal authority into too early a period. Uh, it is a, it's one of those major transformations within Christianity that, that happens in the medieval period. And I'm sure we will come back to this later. But I want to talk about after Constantine and with how how rapidly did Christianity spread in the Roman world and from people converting into Christianity as and again maybe this will come back again and again I'm sure. But as we know, mostly elites, of course, they start with them and then they work going down. But how quickly in did they really convert in because as you know when we come to the Byzantine world. Most people, I believe, are Christians, at least in, that, in the Byzantine world. Yeah, we can't, obviously, you can't find out exact numbers, but you can make some clear observations. And that is, um, the first point is that the process, the pattern of the process is that it affects members of the elite classes first. And by about the year 400, so 75 years after Constantine, well, two, three political generations after Constantine, say, uh, you have to be a Christian if you want to participate in the public and administrative life of the empire. Um, so the, that, I think, is a, a... We don't get any sense that there are a lot of people dropping out who might otherwise participate. So I think the emergence, I mean, that's enforced by legislation. Uh, and we get uh, various comments about that in the texts that are written by people living around the year 400, uh, that's the state of affairs by 400. You have to be a Christian in some way, shape or form uh, in, with uh, some kind of public allegiance to, to Christianity by 400 if you want to carry on being part of the imperial system. And the vast majority of the landowning elites of the empire clearly do make that uh, leap and to have been Christian. So the conversion of the elite is a kind of late 4th, early 5th century phenomenon. The other big kind of um, take we have on further conversion uh, is that in both the eastern and the western half of the empire, uh, the determined effort to start to spread Christianity among the vast majority of the population who live in the countryside, so the peasantry, that the, the, these initiatives are all 6th century. So it looks mm -hmm. as though elites convert in 4th, early 5th century, and then we start to try and build churches in the countryside to adapt the Christian message to a way that will work for peasants. Uh, that That's a 6th century phenomenon. So uh, uh, I think by the end of the 6th century, so about around the year 600, probably nearly everyone is being baptised 
in in and in that sense uh, is a Christian of one kind or another. But it's clearly a time delay before we start really trying to spread Christianity systematically into the countryside. What about the Middle East? How does Christianity, because that of course becomes important very soon, so how does Christianity spread in the Middle East? It's 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 the same, you know. That's part of the East Roman Empire. Uh, it's the same kind of um, time frame, and in fact, um, most of our sources for the late fourth and fifth century uh, amongst Roman elites are actually uh, people writing in Greek or living in Turkey, Palestine, Syria. So it's uh, the the Middle East is actually. The Middle East and the Near East, those parts of the Roman Empire, they're better documented. Egypt, too, in a different way, uh, with all the papyri, papyrological materials that survive. Um, we know far more about those areas of the Roman Empire than we do about, say, Spain or Britain. Uh, we know a fair bit about southern Gaul. There's quite a lot of sources from there. Um, but uh, the, the Eastern Mediterranean is very well documented. And we have to skip a little bit time frame because we had to have a lot to cover and we don't have time for to cover century by century, I'm afraid. But sure. I want to skip to one very famous uh, emperor of the Byzantine world, and that's of course Justinian. And I want to talk about Justinian and his, because he was as well the last Latin emperor of the Roman world. So let's talk about the rule and how important Justinian is to the history of Christendom. Yeah, he, he's uh, he's very important because um, I think his his kind of chief importance is to make sure that the official Roman version of Christianity um, remains the official orthodoxy. Uh, one of the things that had happened in the fourth and fifth centuries was a process of Christian doctrinal formation. Um, the pre-Constantinian uh, Christian church consisted of a lot of local communities that were in some contact with one another, but they had not arrived at defined doctrinal definitions of really crucial stuff like the Trinity. So uh, in the fourth century, we see the emergence of the Nicene doctrine of the Trinity, the total equality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is the Roman, that becomes the Roman official vision of Christian orthodoxy, not without a lot of argument, actually, and it nearly went in a different direction. Uh, but in the first generation or so, a lot of the new states that emerged in the on the territory of the old Western Empire in the late 5th and early 6th century, before Justinian's reign, they adopted a different version of the Trinity, uh, a hierarchical Trinity. Um, where the son is more, where the father is more powerful than the son, um, and Justinian's reign is crucial for destroying uh, three of those successor states in the West that had adopted the non-Nicene Trinity, and it leaves the the, the Nicene Roman official Orthodox definition of Christianity as dominant in the West. And I think there's a real chance if Justinian's campaigns had not destroyed the Vandal Kingdom, the Ostrogothic Kingdom, and indeed the Burgundian Kingdom uh, by incidental action, if it hadn't done that, that this non-Nicene vision of Christian orthodoxy um, 
could easily become predominant in the West. Mm. So we I think that's, talk about. Mm. It's, it's crucial contribution is that, I think. And another thing that we have to talk about is, of course, the creation of Hagia Sophia, which could you imagine Istanbul or Constantinople without that church or without without it? Because it's really hard to imagine Constantinople without Hagia Sophia or Saint Sophia, because it's really a, quite a marvelous and magnificent church. That I really, it's a life goal of mine to see that church in person one day. Yes, uh, it it remains an astonishing building. Uh, it's, I think, one of the favorite. I mean, I love going to Istanbul. It's a fabulous place. And, to and, visit. and if I may, it still dominates the skyline of Istanbul. I think to this it, day. Yes. Yeah, it does. And uh, if you think what most, you know, sixth-century buildings would have looked like, <laughs> its dominance mm. uh, at that point would have been colossal. In in some ways, you're seeing the emergence of a purpose-built Christian architecture for the first time in the 6th century, of which Hagia Sophia uh, is the the prime example. Um, There is no Christian architecture, uh, no specific Christian architecture before Constantine in the sense that um, people met in houses. Uh, You know, there's one of these that survives in the excavations of Dura Europus, and it's just an ordinary urban villa that has been decorated to be a Christian church on the inside. There isn't a separate building. Mm. And when they start building specific churches in the fourth century, they adopt the, the standard Roman public building form, which is the basilica. So it's the rectangle with two aisles of columns and an apse at, the, at one end. It's the standard Roman public building because Roman governors or Roman emperors used to sit in the apse position of authority but when it's adapted for christianity put the altar there but it creates these kind of long thin buildings with quite low roofs um that's the the basilica form um and nearly every church in the fourth and fifth centuries is is a basilica of one kind or another that we know about it's only in the sixth century that we start to see this uh, experimentation that will produce this colossal dome structure great huge open space in the middle and that's what contemporary commentators talk about when they talk about Hagia Sophia. There's a vast space in the middle and a huge space above your head. So your eyes are drawn to heaven. So instead of the basilica's roof closing you in um, and making you look at the east, you're looking towards heaven, towards the sky. Uh, and uh, the, the dome structure, the barrel structure, the barrel vault that leads up to the dome, that allows you to have much more light coming in than you would, and much more natural light have from basilica and it's the the light and the space and the height that that overwhelms contemporary observers when they walk into justinian's church and of course it's not only unique and significant to this day but still it also inspired i believe islamic later islamic which we get to in the second in the mosque that we see in the islamic world it's and it's hard to imagine what they would have looked like if they it wasn't for hagia sophia you know no, uh, no, absolutely. Um, and, and actually in the 6th century, you see uh, a lot of Hagia Sophia-like churches, not as grand, being spread around the Eastern Mediterranean. So uh, when Islam emerges as a powerful religious force, uh, the kind of vision of what a religious building looks like um, is kind of Hagia Sophia-like, not just in Constantinople, but mm-hmm. in, in the other major cities of the empire that they take over. Yeah. 
So let's talk about the rise of Islam for a second, because that is also significant to the story how of of Christianity. And we, as again, we will end with the Crusades, I think. But let's I want because it's, there is Islam, of course, is important. But so let's talk about the emergence of Islam and how that came to dominate the Middle East as well. Yeah, um, it, it's another important element in thinking properly about the rise of Islam uh, makes you think properly about Christianity and its rise to dominance. Um, Islam is a kind of uh, a further spin-off from Judeo-Christian tradition. It's another Abrahamic religion. And uh, it's important to see that it belongs in the same family. Uh, Muhammad is inspired by Old and New Testament texts. Um, and uh, who am I to say? I don't believe in any of this. Possibly by uh, by God as well. I don't know. I would not claim to uh, have anything to say about this. But, uh, you know, the uh, theological context in which Muhammad is thinking is one that is informed by the Old and New Testaments. It, it is said that Muhammad was illiterate himself. So is that the support that claim that he was in that illiterate? Or if he was, so how could he be inspired by Christian text if he was illiterate enough well i think most most people are illiterate of course in the sixth century but uh you get these texts read out in church week after mm. week so uh he clearly been in context uh if you look at the surahs in the quran um what they are doing what most of them do is start from a story from the old or new testament uh and then take it in a new direction but they start from the old and new testament stories so, uh, however, whatever, I mean, I don't know whether Muhammad was illiterate or not. Um, I don't think anyone does, really. But one way or another, the, the person who um, dictated or wrote the Quran knew their Old and New Testaments intensely. Uh, that is an inescapable uh, starting point for understanding Islam. Islam is another religion out of the Abrahamic tradition. Um, and takes uh, obviously takes it in some new directions, uh, but there's no doubting the starting point. Um, and it, it's kind of, it, it's not dissimilar. I mean, you could write a paper comparing um, Muhammad and Constantine, really, that a whole series of military victories validate Constantine and his religion and allow him to make it the public religion of the Roman Empire. And likewise, a whole series of military victories validate Muhammad uh, and his message uh, and give it an afterlife and a permanence that it might not otherwise have had. Um, Muhammad is, I think, able, Muhammad and his successors are able to win a colossal series of victories against Persia and against Rome. Uh, East Rome, because those two had been engaged in about 50 years of mutually destructive warfare before Muhammad comes to the fore, or as Muhammad is coming to the fore. And that's the crucial context for understanding uh, Muhammad's ability to operate freely in Arabia and then to start conquering, is that Persia and East Rome, Constantinople, have fought themselves to a standstill. But very quickly, so between 630 and 660, this allows uh, the new uh, Islamic political unit to conquer Syria, 
Palestine, Egypt, from East Rome. And Spain, of course. Yeah, eventually, yes. It, um, Spain by 720, the rest of North Africa by 690, and the entirety of the Persian Empire. So, I mean, this is an, an extraordinary strategic turnaround, if you like. So uh, everyone kind of takes the view in this period that victory comes from God. So the only logical conclusion by 700 AD is that uh, the Islamic world has identified the correct God because they have won in a way that is totally astonishing uh, and where the divine legitimation of this message is completely unmistakable. Uh, that would be the contemporary. Now we should mention as well that unlike Christianity, the Islam, the, the new Islamic um, uh, caliphate, they were kind of hesitant in converting in, in mass because you know in Islam, if you weren't Christian, sorry, if you weren't is Muslim, you had to. They weren't. I don't think they call themselves Muslims at the time, but let's do it for to simplify. If you weren't a Christian or a Jewish, you had to pay a tax. To, to and then was a kind of revenue outside of pillaging and conquerors conquering so they, they were rather hesitant in converting Christians and Judas Jews into yes and at least in the early period you had even the first generation converts had to pay tax to the Islamic you know, to the Maya caliphs as well yes that's right it, uh, there's clearly a long discussion. Uh, of which we only have part surviving, about whether Islam is meant to lead to mass conversion or not, whether it's uh, a religion for a new chosen people who are the Arabs or whether it's to be for everyone, and what the status of converts would be, would they be totally equal to uh, uh, members, old Arab members who've been part of the enterprise from the beginning, Uh, those kind of debates were clearly happening in early Islam. And what was the status of Christians and Jews who were recognized as being from the same religious family, peoples of the book, the book being the Bible, um, and therefore uh, could expect a reasonable degree of protection, but were clearly not absolutely on point with their religious message because they weren't Muslim. So early Islam is is having to deal with those issues, uh, which are much about its understanding of itself as its attitude to Jews and Christians. And it takes a while before it uh, kind of comes to the conclusion that, yes, it is a mass religious movement and that converts should have the same status as, as uh, original old believers uh, and that this is to be a new alternative religious position. Um, uh, and certainly by the early 8th century, converts are begin, beginning to be uh, a major phenomenon. Uh, we know that one of the issues that um, powers the Abbasid takeover from the Umayyads in the 740s is that the Abbasids uh, are willing to view converts as equals to uh, older Arab Muslims. So that's, you know, the, the convert issue is clearly mm. enormously important by the 740s. Now, another thing I want to talk about as well is the coin wars. I believe mean, this is under the second Justinian in Constantinople and against Abdul Malik, who of course began first because, as, we, as you know, the 
image in Islam, early Islam wasn't that controversial as it is today. So he's really the first, I believe, I would say, caliph not to use the Byzantine coinage, which was the currency at the time. He began to re remake the coins under his image. And it been, has been prophesied that the image is also of the prophet, I think. So, the, but there's a, I don't know if that has been disputed quite yet. That's it seems most people did think that that is actually Abd Abdul Malik himself and not the prophet. But let's talk a little bit about the coin wars that happened under Justinian II and Abd Abdul Malik. Yeah, it's uh, it's the last moment where Constantinople thinks it might be able to reverse the losses because um, you know the key revenue producing heartlands of the East Roman Empire have fallen under Muslim control in the course of the 6th century. And in the early 690s, Justinian II uh, thinks that he sees an opportunity to reverse uh, the conquests and win back some of these territories. So Syria, Palestine, Egypt, the really, you know, the really rich heartlands of the old Eastern Empire. Uh, he recruits a lot of Slavic soldiers from the Balkans uh, and he lays out a kind of ideological claim, part of which is to put the face of Christ on his coinage. The first time you'd had crosses, you'd had lambs, we'd never had the face of Christ on a coin before. Um, and Justinian II does this as he reopens uh, war against the Umayyad caliphs. And it's at that moment that uh, Abdul Malik changes Islamic coinage from echoing Byzantine forms to something very different. Uh, as you said, we get this extraordinary brief issue of what's called the standing caliph type of coin from the uh, from Abdul Malik, which is a figure holding a sword, a bearded figure holding a sword. Um, and it's not clear who that is. Is it Abdul Malik? Uh, mm. But a bearded figure holding a sword could be Muhammad. It's unclear. Uh, it's a sign anyway that... Uh, Islam is not so completely against images. Do we have other yeah. images of Abd Abdul Malik that we can compare the coinage with? Yeah, absolutely. And we also have these extraordinary uh, Umayyad desert palaces from mm. um, the the Syrian hinterland, um, and they they are painted with figural representations of people and and rulers and whatever. So um, clearly, the in its first two generations, Islam is not so absolutely iconoclast um, as it later became. But uh, after the, a brief flirtation with this coinage type, which is either Abdul Malik or Muhammad himself, it would make kind of sense if it's a, a, a kind of response to Justinian II that it would be Muhammad uh, being put on the, the coins. But, uh, you know, I, I'm not expert enough to decide this. And I don't know if it really can be decided. I don't know how you would decide it. Um, but then we go to the absolute, what becomes the absolutely standard non-figural Islamic coin type where you just have verses of the Quran um, on them. So no figural representations at all. And that happens pretty quickly in the 690s. So uh, response A to Justinian's reopening of the wars and his uh, positive uh, assertion of the face of Christ on his coinage uh, is standing caliph, but the the 
long-term response is verses of the Quran and a complete aniconic uh, coinage. And of course, Justinian goes on to lose and lose badly um, all his uh, he Slavic... He was not like the first, he was not as the first Constantine to put it this way. Yeah. Sorry, no, sorry, not, sorry, first Justinian, not first Constantine, but first Justinian. No, indeed. Um, uh, it didn't work. His policy didn't work. He's totally defeated. Uh, he loses his throne. And his nose. And his nose. And actually, Constantinople is plunged into civil war and chaos for about 20 years um, in the aftermath of his defeats. Um, you know, because def- when you claim to be God's special state in the cosmos, then defeat is a real problem because you have lost, clearly lost divine favor. Otherwise, you wouldn't be defeated, Um, especially when you're being defeated by the forces of Islam. There is a a serious questions to be answered there. No, no, I want to leave the East for a little while and enter to Europe finally, because at a little later, I you might not remember the date, but of course I want to talk about Charles Martel and the rising of his dynasty as and, and constant and uh, Charlemagne as well. But I want to begin with the Charles Martel and the Battle of uh, Tours. But um, as I want to say that I don't think personally that the Battle of Tours is that decisive. I think maybe they would the Mayad in Spain would have thrown a little bit into France, but I don't think. As Gibbon claims that they would have been in Inden or the entire entirety of Europe would have been Christian. I think, I think it's kind of almost exaggerated the Battle of Tours, and of course, and Gibbon helped a lot in making this exaggeration. But I don't think it would have been is that decisive what people make it out to be. I suspect that's probably right. Uh, it's <laughs> Gibbon did write awfully well about it. It's, uh, it's one of the best bits of Gibbon where he talks mm-hmm. about uh, if uh, Charles Martel had lost, how madrasas would have spread across Europe, etc., etc. I but, don't uh, think there would have been a Charlemagne though if that had happened. That might that might be fair. Uh, yeah, no, that's fair enough. I mean, Charles Martel is Charlemagne's grandfather, and crucial uh, his victories are crucial. Uh, to establishing the legitimacy of what will become the Carolingian line, uh, that's for sure. Um, and uh, the reunification of Francia under Carolingian rule uh, goes, uh, uh, the, the victoriousness of Charles Martel is crucial to that process. Um, and that might have might well have been threatened. But yeah, it's, it's very hard to know. It doesn't, I mean, you know, it looks more like a series of Islamic raids uh, booty raids rather than any serious attempt at conquest, but yeah. So let's talk about. Uh, we made an episode about Charlemagne uh, about a year ago, and I highly recommend Stuart Airline. I highly recommend checking that one out as well. But and this book is fabulous on the Carolingian dynasty. But let's talk about Charlemagne and his conversion in Germany, because that would of course become, as we again we will get back to the Christianization of Scandinavia. The, method they use there will be the Charlemagne methods as his of his Christianization of Germany. So let's talk about that for a while as well on the founding of the Holy Roman Empire. Or as, of course that will be a later later name for the Empire, but let's talk about the founding of the of Charlemagne's Empire. Yeah, it's a it's a crucial moment, I think, um the the formation of, of Charlemagne's Empire. Um, what you see is the reunification for the first time since the 5th century of most of the Latin West under one ruler. Um, And Charlemagne clearly adopts the old Roman 
imperial ideologies that uh, this kind of material political success is uh, a direct um, reflection of God's favor, uh, that it wouldn't happen otherwise, and that Charlemagne actually, uh, to keep on deserving that degree of God's favor, needs to uh, advance what he understands to be God's agendas within um, the areas of his control. Uh, and that you can see two things going on. One is conscious mechanisms for spreading Christianity, as you talked about, particularly in the conquest of Saxony, uh, which is all about kind of forced conversion, but then further internal processes of church reform, correctio, correction, as the, the Carolingians call it. And Charlemagne um, does many things, but he's clearly committed to those two aspects of Christian agenda uh, in uh, a very systematic way. And he passes on that to his sons, uh, to his son and heir, Louis the Pious. So you get a kind of 60 years of uh, determined uh, pushing of these kinds of Christian agendas from a dominant imperial court and 60 years of careful allocation of some degree of substantial financial resource behind it as well. Um, so this is a, a formative moment in the history of Western Christendom. Um, in terms of internal reform, it is about defining uh, a correct form of Christianity. You know, this is the this is the Carolingian watchword, correctio, in the Latin, correct. There's one right way to do things. So we establish service books, we establish translations of the Bible and the Psalms and all the key service books. Uh, we establish sermon collections and we, make we try to make sure that these correct forms of religious observance will be spread uh, across all the area under Charlemagne's rule. Uh, before that, there were lots of local variations. People didn't seem to think that was a problem before Charlemagne. But Charlemagne is looking for um, a uniform, much more monolithic vision of correct Christianity and starts to put the institutions in place that would allow that to be spread, as well as, of course, whenever it gets the opportunity of spreading Christianity to new areas within Europe. Mm. And at the end, of course, it started, well, it was mostly the elites that were affected by this. So were the lower classes still pagan somewhat, or were they kind of, how, how did that, because as we talked about in, I made an episode of, quite a while ago, about two years now, I think, with Peter Wilson, where we talked about this in the our episode on the Holy Roman Empire, where we speak about how you know, mainly the elite were the Christian ones, and the pagans were kind of excluded, sorry, not pagans, but the lower classes, were kind of excluded, so were there still paganism in the lower classes, or how? How did what about what happened? Where the lower classes? I think if life? we were able to observe it, we'd find um, a lot of religious hybridity. That they have uh, what would look to us a very strange mixture of religious behaviors and beliefs going on. Um, one thing that's very important to realize is that there are hardly any churches still in the ninth century. The great era of European church building is 10th and 11th century. Charlemagne puts in place the incentives that lead landowners to build many more churches. But the, the actual building doesn't happen in his time. It happens in the 200 years after him. 
So the pattern that you observe now in sort of France or Germany or England, where you have a church in every village, that doesn't yet exist. You're still, most people are still maybe 10 kilometers from a church on average in the time of Charlemagne. And that What means... about monasteries? Are they starting to become the, the thing? Uh, yes, there's a there's an impetus uh, behind monastic foundation, particularly not so much Charlemagne, but his son, Louis the Pious, uh, pushes through a process of monastic reform, a new vision of what correct monasticism should look like. Um, and that slowly spreads. Again, none of this happened suddenly, but the new standards spread, are set at the Carolingian court and then spread slowly. But I think out in the countryside, you would find Uh, nearly everyone is being baptized. Uh, they probably go to church on major Christian festivals, like maybe two or three times a year. Um, and if you asked them, they'd say they were Christian, but they would probably still be engaging in a lot of um, religious practices that would later be defined as pagan. So I think they would have, you would certainly have a Christian overlay um, which would be around baptism and saying the Lord's Prayer, which they're supposed to learn by heart and probably did. I think it's fairly easy to learn the, the Lord's Prayer by heart uh, and saying the creed, the shortest of the creeds, uh, learning that by heart. That's what baptismal instruction um, in the early Middle Ages consists of. And I find that perfectly plausible. So you could ask them to do that. But, you know, Uh, for 90% of their religious lives, they would be on their own. They wouldn't have access to a Christian church. They would not have access to a Christian priest. And who knows what they would be doing on the ground you know, in terms of trying to make sure that the crops grow, to fend off ill health, that their children survive, that there isn't a famine. You know, There would be all kinds of um, local responses to that kind of religious need because the church was not in a position to provide a massive, fully defined alternative for them. And now I was on the European continent for a while, and of course go to England, and you United Kingdom, not the United Kingdom, but the British Isles, and I want to talk about the Christianization there, and of course you mentioned Bede quite a lot, and we made an episode on Bede as well, for, uh, a little bit earlier this year, but let's talk about how essential Bede is to understand the process of Christianization of you know, the British Isles as well, because he's essential, isn't he? He's absolutely essential. Uh, you could wish you had uh, uh, a narrative of Bede's intensity for everywhere that Christianity <laughs> spreads. We would know a lot more if we did. Um, and But it, I, I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting you again, but I want to add as well, I read, like I said, I read Bede myself, and it's, even though he is fascinating, it is not for everyone. You might say it can be tedious. How how almost every page is devoted to oh how Christian Christianity is the right religion. So it might not be for everyone to read, but for those who are interested, it's absolutely worth reading. Bede. Ah, uh, yeah, it's full of great stories. I mean, uh, I love in particular his uh, account of the the crucial meeting in Northumbria where they're deciding to become Christian or not, and they're gathered in. Uh, Edwin's Mead Hall, it's probably yabbering uh, up in the Scottish borders, uh, and the sparrow flies through the Mead Hall and up stands one of Edwin's great retainers and says, mm, life is, what is, what do we know of life? Life is like a sparrow. We're 
in the warmth and the light of the meat hall in one moment and then the darkness on the other side and we don't know what comes before and what comes after. And if Christianity comes along and tells us about the before and the after, then we should be grateful and we should adopt this model. It's a fantastic story. It's probably entirely fictitious, unfortunately, but it's a great story. Mm. As, as uh, it's a story with a son, with a child who can't be drawn the seal by the well. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Um Beat is essential, but it's clearly it's a very uh, partial partial story. You have lots of other sources as well, and uh, he tells us that it's the story of uh, the 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 way to understand Anglo-Saxon conversion in Britain is top down from royal courts, and I'm sure that's true. Uh, what he doesn't also tell you is that this meant that you had to adapt Christianity become a religion for an elite that was a warrior elite you know um, this is what they did all day that's the essence of what they did they had to fight to maintain uh, their land holdings they had to fight against uh, a lot of competitors from other kingdoms they were tied into a judicial system which might lead them to again to wage war on behalf of a member of their king group against potential opponents um, this is a problem compared to what Jesus has to say about violence uh, in the gospel stories. Uh, and clearly Christianity, not only in, among the Anglo-Saxons, also among the Irish, who are similarly uh, uh, a warrior elite, uh, Christianity has to make an adaption uh, to the, the needs of this new Christian constituency, Christian warriors. Um, and you see a, a surprisingly lenient approach or surprisingly lenient if you look at it from the gospels, uh, if that's your point of departure, surprisingly lenient approach to uh, acts of violence and people who've had to engage in acts of violence, um, people who've had to engage in feud or fight in battle um christianity has to become a viable religion for people who are going to have to do that so you can't make those uh too much of a problematic act they can't be something that confines you to hell or consigns you to hell because uh, if they did christianity would not work for these people so uh, there's a very interesting process of adaptation that takes place uh, it's probably also working amongst frankish Elites who are also warriors, of course, but it's better documented amongst the Irish and the Anglo-Saxons, um, whereby Christianity makes its peace with uh, a martial elite. I, I want to ask as well, because I want to, and I want to go back all the way to the Roman times, when when Constantine Christianized the Roman Empire, where the Christians were the Christians from that time in England, or how did it not? reach the English British Isles what under the era of Constantine or how do we it know certainly did. About I it? mean there's there's archaeological evidence um, we we know there are Christian bishops they turn up at late Roman councils on the continent every so often and actually there's um, evidence from um, elite villas where chap where pagan shrines are converted into chapels so we know that Christianity does spread in the same kind of way amongst Roman uh, landowning elites in Britain 
but they are swept away by the process of uh, Anglo-Saxon takeover in the fifth and sixth century. Um, so I think in sort of central and eastern England, the bit that becomes Anglo-Saxon quite quickly, uh, most of the bearers of Christianity who would have carried Christianity on into the post-Roman period had they survived, they don't survive. So uh, when the mission comes to Kent in 597, they are basically starting again. There probably are a few, well, there are documented a few uh, Christian congregations, but they've been cut off for 200 years and um, they uh, need to be reorganized and the, the church is starting again. There are no bishops. And, of course, the next topic of our agenda is, of course, the famous Scandinavians that enters Lindisfarne in seven, in the year seven and eight, seven hundreds, which is, of course, the Vikings enter, that enter the chat. So let's talk about the Viking entry into, into the Christian world and, of course, the native Christianity attempt of the Vikings in Scandinavia. But the, there were attempts by German Christian missionaries in Scandinavia, but they were all, most most of them were either taken slaves or they were, you know, killed themselves. There were attempts, but they, they never man, amounted to anything other than just adventures in the Scandinavian world. So let's talk about the Vikings and eventually the Christianity, Christianization of Scandinavia as well, which you as well talked about. Yeah, the the, the... Carolingian imperial period and its aftermath sees a great spread of Christianity um, northwards and eastwards across the European landmass, of which Scandinavia is one part. Um, Charlemagne's conquest and, or forced conversion of, of Saxony, sort of top-down intervention, conquer everyone, make them become Christian, uh, that's one model of spreading Christianity, but it barely that's really the only occasion that it's employed. And actually it's very difficult to do. The model uh, that you, whereby Christianity spreads over these much larger cases and eventually works in Scandinavia, uh, but also in Poland and beyond as well, is one where local elites, uh, a rising local dynast, decides that they will take on the imperial religion. And they're usually doing it in the context of using um, the relationship with nearby emperors to leverage their own position at home. So uh, the, the Christianization of Scandinavia, the Christianization of Poland, um, Christianization of Bohemia, Christianization in Ukraine, all of these occur in contexts where one dynasty adopts Christianity in a context where it is establishing its power. In other words, it's part of a process of state formation, as we would call it, uh, in these contexts. Um, and uh, it's about building, it's clearly about building alliances with imperial power uh, when that is being perceived as advantageous for establishing your position at home. So it's actually very interesting. It's a kind of self-Christianization process in alliance with empires rather than Constantine's conquest Sorry, Charlemagne's mm. conquest of Saxony model. That, that is too costly. No one does that. It's uh, Christianity becomes a, an option, uh, the option of choice amongst 
the dynast who would be king in various regions of Northern and Eastern Europe in the course of the 10th and 11th centuries. Um, and uh, it is the East Frankish world, which becomes the Holy Roman Empire, uh, that clearly plays the crucial role in this. Um, the Scandinavian kings like um, Harold Bluetooth in Denmark or uh, the various Haralds. Olaf uh, Tengelsson in uh, Norway, yeah, of course. In Norway. Um, they are in relationship with these, with these new emperors. I gotta say, it's interesting to me that Tridwason actually Christianized Norway and not Saint Olaf, who's who's yes. this giant, become more famous for obvious reasons. But he he became Saint and not Olaf Tridwason, who actually is the one who should be recognized for Christianizing Norway. He not, he didn't even doesn't seem to get any credit at all. He doesn't have a chapter in Snorri, but uh, he doesn't get much, I don't feel like he gets much credit for Christianizing. Maybe today's new historians are trying to like, give him more credit, but he doesn't, at least up until now, he hasn't gotten much credit for Christianizing in Norway. No, well, history is always written by the winners. And mm. of course, um, Trigresson's uh, dynasty is not, the doesn't become the dominant royal dynasty. So uh, he's, I mean, it's showing you how intense the competition is uh, at this point between rival would-be dynasties who are regional bosses and want to become royal. They have to eliminate one another. That's a kind of Darwinian survival of the fittest process. And um, I mean, yeah, to be fair, said Olaf as that. well, sorry for interrupting you again, but it said Olaf had lost and he is still become more famous, as you said, History is written by the winners, but Saint Olaf is arguably more famous, even though he did lose at the Battle of Suppose Battle of Stiklestad yeah, as well. He, he, well, he loses in the short term, but his descendants uh, make use mm. of him. Uh, mm. So, I mean, uh, history is written in the, by the long term winners, shall we say? <laughs> mm. And it's interesting. I do think I do think that I might be wrong here, but I do think that the son of Eric uh, the Red, who uh, with Tridrosson as well as he's supposed to Christianize Greenland, I think, but that is how he actually, by all of Tridrosson, but he accidentally discovers America as well when he gets that mission from Tridrosson as well. Yes, yeah, that's right. And uh, Tridrosson is very important um, in uh, the conversion of Iceland, uh, mm. uh, the, the Icelandic communities uh, adopt Christianity to fend him off. Um, so that he doesn't interfere in their lives. So, how, how that's something I want to, I don't mention this in the book, but I want to talk about this, and that we talked about this after the record, but that is, of course, the Christianization of Kiev Rus as well, mm -hmm. because that, and that though it's probably not, most likely not true, you have this story that, you know, the lead, I don't remember his name, but the leader of Kiev Rus at the time wanted to choose a religion and he chooses Christianity. It has three options of Judaism, Christianity and Islam. And uh, had, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but it, it's it's a good story nonetheless. But in the end the, his his envoys does end up seeing Hagia Sophia and he also awestruck by Hagia Sophia and that is why he chooses Eastern Orthodoxy as well. Yes, it's it's Vladimir. Uh or Volodymyr, if we do the Ukrainian pronunciation. 
whose statue is still there in Kiev. Uh, yeah, um, there's clearly a context uh, uh, again of uh, it's this same process of uh, dynasties involved in state formation deciding of which is the most advantageous religious position to adopt. Um, the the Rus in Kiev are sitting on top of river routes that, are, that lead them both to Constantinople uh, and to the Islamic world. Um, the, a lot of their trade is actually down the Volga into the Islamic world more than is down the uh, Dnieper into the Black Sea and then to Constantinople, although we know more. Uh, the texts tell us more about the, um, the Western branch to Constantinople, but the, the coins are telling us that actually the Islamic trade is really crucial. So, uh, and we know that this Kievan uh, Rurikid dynasty uh, is slowly establishing its dominance over a series of other regional uh, bosses up and down the Russian river routes. Um, and that's the context in which they're making their choice. Um, Vladimir's um, grandmother, uh, Olga or Helga, uh, had chosen, it seems, a Christian allegiance but her son, Sviatoslav, rejects it uh, and in fact goes for uh, a wacky uh, own version of paganism. But then um, Sviatoslav's son, Vladimir or Vladimir, uh, goes back to a Christian allegiance, the same as his grandmother had had. So there's, careful, there's clearly a lot of uh, religious contestation going on at the Kievan court and a careful choice uh, that's finally arrived at, that it will be Christianity. Um, in this case, of course, it's Christianity from Constantinople rather than from the Holy Roman Empire, which is too far away. The, the linkages for, for Kiev are with Constantinople uh, rather than with uh, Eastern Francia. So that's uh, where that, uh, that, that comes from. But it's, it belongs in that same range of choices as we've seen in Poland and in Scandinavia, it's all in the same era. Um, and it's in the same kind of context. It's part of this astonishing process of uh, religious choice as part of state building, which creates uh, a recognizable map of Europe by around about the year 1000. Mm. So of course, next, topic where we have it we have a lot of ground to travel still and the next big thing that happens in Christianity is the Great Schism which would divide would divide forever and still has divided is the Eastern Orthodoxy with the Catholicism. So let's talk about what caused what led up to the Great Schism and it's one of the most important events in medieval Christendom I think and so what what led up to the dividing between the Catholic, Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodoxy? Yeah, there are two answers, there are two answers to that. <laughs> One answer is um, a very particular quarrel over um, whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son, um, where the Latin Church had added um, uh, the filioque clause and from the son into the, the third part of the Nicene Creed uh, that uh, in other words that the, the son is just as much responsible for sending the Holy Spirit as the father is 
which wasn't in the original Nicene Creed. Um, uh, so there's a kind of technical quarrel over that. But I think that is uh, as much pretext as cause. The real cause is the extraordinary rise to uh, overarching religious authority of the Roman papacy, which occurs in the 10th, um, well, particularly the 11th and the 12th centuries. Um, because uh, the filioque clause, the, the teaching that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son as well as the Father, that is championed by the papacy in the 11th and 12th centuries. And it's that which causes the Constantinopolitan church to break away. But the context of this uh, is that the Roman papacy was claiming and trying to assert positively for the first time um, a unique preeminence over the entirety of the Christian world um, and uh, was prepared to push arguments, uh, therefore, to the point of rupture. And this is what we see in the Great Schism of uh, 1054. Well, we didn't know it was a Great Schism in 1054. It might have been healed. <laughs> it wasn't, despite mm. various attempts to do so. So it becomes a Great Schism uh, in retrospect. Uh, but this is right at the moment where the Roman papacy is beginning to flex its biceps um, mm. and is not afraid for the first time of pushing a quarrel to the max, as it were, with regard to other Christians living in other parts of uh, the Christian ecumene, apart from the Latin West. And the rise of the papacy is, is such an interesting story. Um, it's kind of an accidental knock-on effect of Charlemagne's empire, I think, in the sense that Charlemagne managed to create uh, a set of church institutions and educational practices which, were pre which produced over many, over whole sequence, unbroken sequence of generations, churchmen who understood themselves as being part of the same Christian church and understood that their practices were correct Christianity um, uh, and therefore should be spread. But by the time we get to the end of the 10th century, there is no single power in Europe which controls all of Latin Christendom anymore. You know, the Holy Roman Emperor only runs Germany and Northern Italy, doesn't run France, doesn't run Britain, doesn't run the new Christian states in Scandinavia, uh, Poland, Bohemia, doesn't run Spain. So there is no single ruler anymore in the way that Charlemagne did, who runs all of Western Christendom. Uh, and what this means is that it's impossible for any secular ruler to sustain the unity that these churchmen feel. Because if a king of France calls a, uh, a council, the uh, bishops of Germany and Northern Italy will not go to it. And if the Holy Roman Emperor calls a council, then only his bishops will go to it. There is no uh, international uh, Christian religious authority. And the papacy is actually created uh, as a vehicle by these post-Carolingian churchmen who want uh, a politically independent uh, religious authority. Um, and it is actually northern churchmen put into power in Rome in the first place by the Roman Emperor, uh, Holy Roman Emperor, who actually bring this more ambitious vision of the papacy uh, to Rome and actually enact it in practice. And this is what we see happening in the 11th and 12th centuries. Mm.
So, another thing I want to talk about is the papal state, because I find it a bit ludicrous that the Pope needs its own state or country, if you will, and it, even its own army. It's a bit, I mean, it made sense at the time, but still, it's a bit ludicrous to the Pope. What did the Pope need an army, papal army for? Which was created at the time as well, I believe. Uh, yes, it starts to emerge. I mean, it really emerges as the Holy Roman Empire breaks up. But it's a it's a, a whole series of grants of territorial and financial rights across northern different parts of northern Italy, which as the uh, which start with Charlemagne, uh, reinforced by Louis the Pious, and then reinforced further um, in the eleventh uh, and twelfth centuries. Which, when you add them up together create a sort of territorial dominance of the papacy in certain areas. Uh, the papacy needed a revenue, uh, you know, needed sources of revenue to fulfill this grander role within Christendom. And the only way you can provide revenue for anything in the in the pre-modern world is to give it rights over lands, because land is what generates wealth in a pre-industrial, pre-modern economy. So you gave the Pope rights over various bits of territory, um, and when the Holy Roman Empress, Holy Roman Empire starts to break up, the Pope is left as de facto, with de facto control over these regions. Uh, and that's what gives us the Papal State. I mean, not only Rome and its um, immediate surroundings, but also uh, bits of land over by the Adriatic as well, and so on. Mm. So, of course, the last thing we're going to talk about, we discovered quite a lot of brand. We knew there's one thing more thing I want to cover, and that is, of course, the, and I believe you end up the book somewhat there as well, Dead Crusades. And let's talk about, because Jerusalem has was has been in the hands of the rising Turkic power, Seljuk Turks, for quite some time already, 90 years, I believe. We talked about this in our episode some two, three years ago about Anaxius Comnenus, and it, where we talked about how the Seljuk Turks has been under, uh, sorry, Jerusalem has been under the Seljuk Turks for quite almost 80, 90 years up until the point of the Crusades. <laughs> so when and Alexis Comianus does use the Seljuks for his own gain as well, but then he realized that it become a bit of torn in the side for him. So how, how, so when, what made him go to the Pope and say, hey, I need some army? I need some help with getting more soldiers to fight this because we, our empire has very not competent enough soldiers. It was yeah. not intended in the first place to have this hundreds of thousands soldiers uh, on his doorstep on Constantinople. I think that made pretty clear. Yeah, certainly. I think it came as a very nasty shock to him uh, when that happened. No, uh, Jerusalem had been in the hands of various Muslim rulers for centuries. Uh, what happens in the generation uh, of Alexius, though, uh, is that the Seljuk Turks had been taking over more and more of uh, Constantinople's territories in what's now Turkey. And uh, Constantinople's control after the Battle of Manzikert in 1076, you see a collapse. Uh, Manzikert is uh, over by Lake Van, it's in the far east of Turkey. But after the Battle of Manzikert, which one of Alexis's predecessors loses, uh, then the Seljuk Turks rapidly advance through what we call Asia Minor or modern Turkey and have taken over most of the Byzantine territories there. So there is an immediate crisis. The crisis Alexis wants is to get some Western help to push back against this conquest of Turkey. 
uh, the Pope sells it, Pope Urban II sells it on the other hand, um, as a mission to recapture Jerusalem, uh, to restore it to Christian rule, and adds the uh, some kind of promise that taking part in this expedition will um, get your soul to heaven. Uh, exactly how is contested, exactly what he said is not clear. Uh, but Urban is, as it were, on the same page as Alexis in that he's appealing to uh, warrior elites in uh, Western Europe and particularly to the bit Urban came from southwestern France and his preaching tour is in precisely the same area that he came from and to the elites that he already knew. So he's uh, preaching to friends, neighbours and distant connections. So he's looking for warrior contingents of a few thousand men to go to Constantinople and help Alexius retake lost Asia Minor. Uh, that part works, but we also get this extraordinary knock-on effect where unauthorised preachers pick up parts of Urban's message, uh, particularly Peter the Hermit and others, uh, mm. and they start preaching crusade more generally. So in, in addition to contingents of warrior elites setting off for Constantinople, we get the so-called Peasants' Crusade, where 100-plus thousand people uh, of all kinds, uh, not military at all, just start heading off for Constantinople, um, sweep their way through the Rhineland, uh, engaging in pogroms against Jews on the way, uh, eventually most of them arriving outside Constantinople, and Alexius is absolutely horrified. Uh, what and, and I have to mention, of course, that according to the Alexia by Anna Comnini, she she claims that he was ready for this. He was prepared 100%. Of course, this is propaganda to immortalize, immortalize her father and glorify him. But was this the case? Is, is she somewhat right or is how prepared was he really? He's mentioned it was quite a short, so it shouldn't have been that prepared as Anna Comnini claims he was. No, absolutely not. I mean, you know, these uh, these people moved slowly. They would have realised, by I mean, in Constantinople, you'd know by the time they got to Hungary that this was happening, and they would be here in about six or seven or eight weeks. You know, you could see it. It's not like they suddenly arrived, you didn't know they were coming, and then they're there the next day. You've got a bit of warning, but... Uh, it's not what Alexius wanted. Um, and he basically just transports them all across the Bosporus as quickly as possible. And indeed, most of those people get massacred by the Turks uh, in the, the autumn of, uh, of the year um, because they're not, you know, they're not soldiers. They're not ready for this. The main military contingent arrives a bit later um, and that starts to win these uh, victories. First of all, in... in uh, Turkey, uh, what becomes Turkey, uh, but they're also not doing what Alexius wants in the sense that he expected them to give him back control of every area that they liberated from Turkish control, and that wasn't their point of view. They did give him certain bits back in um, Asia Minor, what becomes Turkey, Nicaea, etc., goes back under Byzantine control. And the earth never really becomes a Byzantine state again. Absolutely. They keep on going uh, from what's now Turkey uh, into Syria and then on into the Holy Land. And they clearly, we don't know when, uh, large groups amongst them had no intention of returning those territories 
at all to uh, Byzantine control. And when they win, which they do, I think, by incredible good fortune, as one contemporary commentator puts it, it's the second greatest miracle since the resurrection that they do win. They should never have won. In fact, they find a, an Islamic world that's incredibly disunited. So, you know, they arrive at just the right moment. They nearly lose all the same outside Antioch. They're about to lose and they miraculously win. But they do eventually win and they just divide the Holy Land up. Or oh, well, those of them who want to stay divided up amongst themselves. But uh, this is not what Alexius had in mind at all. Mm. Now, I'm talking about the Holy I mean, I met a friend of mine when I was in Vienna a little bit earlier who who worked the hypocrisy of crusade because we should mention that uh, not of Jews do suffer under the road to the crusade that get slaughtered and the hypocrisy behind the crusade as well. We talked about, how, but you know, a friend of mine, friend of a friend of mine, mentioned that you know, we think about it that as hypocritical today, of course, but the, the road to crusade and the ideology behind it. But for for a eleven eleven twelfth century crusader, this and I think this is a fairly good point to mention that while we think of it as hypocritical today, it made total sense for them. They didn't think they were bad guy running around just reaching making anarchy or you know wreaking havoc upon Jews who were you know. In innocent Jews, they for them they made total sense. They felt that they were that this Christian, holy and do kind of thing that were going to reconquer the holy holy land Jerusalem. But it wasn't what we think about today. This ludicrous kind of vandals or barbarians, for lack of better words, that were roaming through Europe until Constantinople or Jerusalem. And I think that's a fair. That kind of made me rethink this a little bit because it makes a lot of sense that he had, from their point of view, they weren't, you know, these this barbarians that they, they came to, that we think of today, that were oh, hypocrites that came to Jerusalem. Yeah. History throws up a lot of difficult uh, judgmental questions like that one. I mean, it's uh, uh, extraordinarily uh, problematic enterprise. Uh, this crusade enterprise and a huge numbers of people die um, and it's uh, doomed. I mean, you know, they only win by accident. As soon as these, the Islamic world uh, restores its unity, they reconquer the crusader states and they're always going to, you know, uh, no matter how, how complicated and wonderful the fortifications you put up in the Holy Land, there are never going to be enough resources coming out of Western Europe to sustain this colonial domination. Uh, and I do the believe there is this, the, I'm sorry for interrupting century. you. I'm yeah. sorry for interrupting you again, but that, that's what I meant by that this amusing story when you mentioned for the unification. I do believe this is under the third crusade when Salam, the Christians build, I don't think it's King Arthur, sorry, not King Arthur, but King Richard the Lionheart, but then the, the, they build this fortification and then that uses ages to build and then they just Saladin goes and then hey why don't we trade this for another thing and then you know kind of without even fighting so the, the, there is some amusing stories there as well that they, they built the ages yeah. this fortress and then Saladin just goes like hey why don't we trade instead of fighting yeah no absolutely I mean it's an unsustainable Christian enclave um, it was never going to be sustainable in the long term 
But you you do see some interesting um, alternative responses. I mean, I mentioned that the, the Peasants' Crusade engaged yeah. in these pogroms against Jews um, in the Rhineland en route. Uh, and some of the bishops, um, famously the Bishop of Speyer, uh, tries to protect his Jewish citizens within his town. He takes them inside the cathedral precincts in order to kind of protect them mm-hmm. from these uh, murderous gangs who are, are roaming around. So uh, there isn't yet a kind of single view, monolithic demonization of Jews uh, within Christian church circles in the 11th century. I mean, that becomes stronger, in fact, during the crusading period. So by the 13th, there probably is, but but not yet in the 11th. Um, and one effect of the crusade is to draw very... Uh, strict dividing lines between these communities and to reinforce those dividing lines, I think. And I do believe that Barbarossa as well was famous for protecting Jews in his empire yeah. as well, which I find ironic that Hitler later on would name Barbarossa invasion of Russia, Soviet Union after him when he actually protected Jews in his empire as well. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So, no, I- that's right. So I think we're going to end it there, and I think we made a fair, fairly good overview over the Christianization of Europe. We talked quite a while already. So, of course, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And before you go, do you have anything you want to promote? Where can people buy your book, Christendom? And um, <laughs> that's why you have a religion, of course. And do you have any social media you want to share, or do you where people might find you if they have any further question on the Christianization of Europe or Christendom in general. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I'm an old-fashioned medieval historian, so I don't really do social media, but you can find my email address online really easily, and I'd be very happy to answer any questions that anyone has. Just drop me a line. It would be my pleasure to answer them. Thank you so much again for coming on. And uh, we are, this has been with that age 12. I hope you liked this episode. If you liked it, please check out some other episodes you might like as well. We are available on social media under X, formerly known as Twitter or and Instagram. And with that age 12, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you are on Apple Podcasts, consider writing a review of our podcast, and I will try to read it on the podcast if I see it. If you are on Spotify, like, give us five stars. That will help us out a lot. If you are on YouTube, like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time.